This is Marketing Heroes Unfiltered, the journey to CMO, the podcast where we interview high-achieving B2B marketing professionals to know their stories, struggles, and insights in this fast-paced and competitive industry. Hosted by Leslie Carruthers and Danny Muscaplatt, Melissa Romo has more than two decades of experience as a marketer for FTSE 100 and Fortune 500 companies around the world. She has spent more than a decade building and leading globally dispersed, remote, and hybrid teams. She earned an MBA from the Yale School of Management, where she studied organizational behavior and leadership. She is a regular speaker for events around the world, including the Digital Marketing World Forum, Generation Success, Breaking Barriers, and the B2B Marketing Podcast, and has been recognized as a global advertising and marketing, 40 over 40, inspirational woman of the year, and inclusive leader. Melissa is also the author of two books, Your Resource is Human, How Empathic Leadership Can Help Remote Teams Rise Above, and the historical novel, Blue-Eyed Sun, about the loss of national identity during times of war. She has been a contributing writer on travel, expatriatism, and lifestyle for publications in the US, UK, and Poland. This is a podcast about heroes. That's why you're here, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here, Leslie. So would you tell us, how do you start your day? I started to have a very uh, strict habit, which is at quarter to seven, my Labrador and I lace up and we walk about 15 minutes uh, through my town, which is Hoboken, New Jersey, to a coffee shop. It's always the same coffee shop and it's on this beautiful sunny corner. And we go in and I bring my my own thermos with me to the coffee shop and I ask for a large drip coffee because Americanos are too expensive and too hot. So I get a large drip coffee with oat milk. I mean, it's become so rote. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing every morning. And I get my coffee in the in the thermos. And it's funny because people will look at me filling, you know, handing my thermos to the coffee, to the barista. And it's clearly weird. Like most people don't do that. They just come and get a coffee and take it in a paper cup or whatever. But I just hate creating that garbage every single morning. So I just bring my thermos, we fill it up. And then my dog and I will usually walk back because I'll have early, my calls usually start around seven in the morning or 7.30 because I work uh, with a team in the UK. But if I've got a little bit of a window before a call starts, she and I will sit there for 15 minutes and I'll read a book and enjoy my coffee outside and then head home. So that is every single morning. That's what we do. What's her name? Her name is Luna. Luna. Luna the lab. That's amazing. A black Labrador. Labrador. Oh, I love that so (laughs) much. Yeah. My husband husband is Spanish. So Luna in Spanish means moon. Mm -hmm. And he said when we first adopted her, she's so black that you, you can lose her in a dark room. Like you only see her eyes. Like she's so black. And he said she is as black as the new moon. And that's where the name came from, Luna. Yeah. He sounds like a romantic. Yeah, he kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. You mentioned that you, when you've got time, will read a little bit in the morning. What book are you reading right now? So right now I'm reading Walking with Sam by Andrew McCarthy. And to continue the Spain theme, this book is about Andrew McCarthy walking the Camino de Santiago with his son, Sam, who's 19 years old at the time of the story. 
I mean, most of us know Andrew McCarthy as a you know teen actor in the movies from the 80s. I'm really dating myself yeah. now, but from all these movies in the yeah. 80s of Pretty in Pink yeah. and Weekend at Bernie's and things yep. like that. Yep. He's actually an incredible writer. He is such an incredible mm-hmm. writer. He's written three books. This is his third oh, wow. book. He's also a photographer for National Geographic. So he's he's wow. had a couple of amazing okay. careers after his acting time. But this is just such a pleasant a pleasant story. Every time I'm with I'm reading the book even for 10 or 15 minutes, I just have this moment with with the two of them on their journey and uh, he just and I have teenage sons also so I relate so much to the the moodiness and the distance that these teenage boys start to create when they get a little older and um, how grumbly they can be and all of that I mean his son is the same way so I really relate to it a lot. So that's what I'm reading now. What I plan to start when I finish that is uh, Mary Louise Kelly, who's an NPR host and really well-known NPR personality. She's written a book called It Goes So Fast. This Goes So Fast or It Goes So Fast. But it's about her son's last year at home before he goes to college. And I'm taking a child to college in August. So I feel like I'm going to need that book. (laughs) Yes, for sure. Yeah. That's great. I'm going to add those to the list. Where is your son going? So my son wants to be an architect and we're very excited. He's starting at Virginia Tech in August and they have a fantastic architecture program. Uh, He'll be there for five years to get a Bachelor of Architecture, which means it'll enable him to become a licensed architect after five years. Uh, sometimes it, in other schools, sometimes you have to do an extra year and do six. So this this five-year program is perfect for him. And we went down and visited it last year and spent an hour with one of the professors who walked us all through the studio and told us all about the program and the curriculum. And we, we have friends who are architects in New York, and they say every time they interview someone from Virginia Tech, that it's a really impressive candidate. So we're, we're thrilled. We're absolutely thrilled. It's an eight-hour drive. I'm not sure I'm thrilled about an eight-hour <laughs> drive to take my kids to college, but he's really excited. We're excited for him. Well, that's great. Well, congratulations. That's really Thank exciting. You. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So as you think about your career and where you are now and, you know, author and successful marketer, what is your origin story? What brought you to where you are right now? Well, how to be concise about the origin story. I wanted to be a diplomat. I actually uh, took the Foreign Service exam when I was in my last year of college. I went to the University of Virginia and we're just a stone's throw from D.C. So a lot of people end up back in D.C. So I took the Foreign Service exam. I applied to go to the School of International Service at American University. I was admitted to go there for a master's degree in international service. And so I was really going through the motions of becoming a diplomat. And even though I was accepted to this master's degree program, I did not do well enough on the Foreign Service exam to continue in the State Department's kind of intake process. And that was probably not a big deal, but at the time it felt like a really big deal, like a signal that this was not the right career for me. And so I decided not to go to American University. I decided to put that off. And I thought, well, I'll just think about it and I'll do something else for a couple of years and earn some money. And so I went into advertising, which has nothing to do with (laughs) being a diplomat, I didn't think. But I went into advertising and a couple different jobs, but eventually I ended up on Madison Avenue in in, in Manhattan and because it seemed like that's where you have to be to be in advertising. So I ended up there. 
I was able to get my the agency I worked for at the time was Gray Advertising, and I was able to to get an assignment uh, working for Gray in Warsaw, Poland. This was in the '90s. Again, here I'm really dating myself now. This was in the '90s, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and uh, all the cool kids were going to Eastern Europe, and I wanted to do that too. So I went over to Warsaw, Poland, and was busy launching Procter and Gamble's gamut of products, so Pringles and Pantene and detergents and you name it, they've, ne- they've never had any of that stuff, oh right? So, oh, cool. you know, marketing to marketing to people who've never had a choice of what detergent to buy is, is a very different exercise than marketing it to someone in the U.S. who's had dozens of options for many, many decades. It's a really different... There's just this receptivity to advertising and marketing in a place like Poland after the fall of the Berlin Wall that I never have seen that anywhere else. So that was a really exciting part of my career. Long story short, I've bounced around. I was in France for several years working on a global marketing team. Then I was in London for several years, and that's where I started working for my current company. I've had a lot of global assignments and been in a lot of different places outside of the U- of the U.S. And it was interesting because recently I looked back on that and I thought, I am a diplomat. I'm just not doing it at the State Department, you know? And so it's interesting how the career you're meant to have, it will find you, it will pursue you, <laughs> you know? And and it'll surface in ways you might not expect. So yeah, I do feel like a diplomat in a commercial sense because I've had to understand different markets and understand um, different cultural norms and what markets need or what customers want and um, how they're different in different places. And it is a certain type of diplomacy. That's kind of my story and how it connects back. That's awesome. When you were, I'm curious, when you were in Poland, when the wall fell, were you doing awareness marketing because people had never heard of these things? Or was there like a glut of American products and you were competing marketing against similar products, whether it was chips or, you know, soaps or missing. Well, I'll I'll give you an idea of one really interesting brand I worked on was called Ace Bleach, which is a really popular bleach that Procter & Gamble produces in Europe. We don't have it in the United States, but it's a very popular brand in, in Europe. It's a leading brand of bleach. And when I got there, the wall had come down, I guess we were six or seven years into post wall by the time I got there. So it wasn't like the minute after the wall fell, I was there. So it was a few years after, but things were still opening up. We were launching this product, Ace Bleach. The thing that was so interesting was when you launched a new product in a place like Poland, you had to understand the point of departure of your audience. And the point of departure for people in Poland about bleach was using the bleach that was manufactured by the state of Poland. It was the state bleach. And the state bleach, you wouldn't be surprised to know, is pretty bad. (laughs) So the state bleach put holes in everyone's clothes. It was really harsh. People had a learned fear of bleach, right? So there was this really entrenched fear of bleach and how to use bleach. So it wasn't that we were marketing against uh, against competition. We were marketing against the historical fear of a product that was actually much better and safer the way Procter & Gamble was making it. And so We created certain mnemonics, visual mnemonics, to help the audience start to feel comfortable about bleach. So we had this this thing called the tap, where you take like a white sheet and you just really firmly like, you know, tap it twice 
to, you know, you clean it in the bleach and then you tap it twice and you, you know, really strongly to show that it's still, the fabric is still in good shape after it's been bleached. It was so important to show that tap in every ad and every, you know, every place we were putting our visuals, it would be in our billboards and you could hear the tap in our radio ads. So you have to just know what your barrier, you know, the barriers were really an important part of our brief. You know, what are the barriers to trial? And in this case, the barrier to trial was fear that had been created by this other product. And I would say across the board, generally, though, I mean, that's just one example, but across the board, if it had an American flag on it, people wanted to buy it. Mm. (laughs) So there was a real, and it kind of, this goes back to the diplomacy thing. There was a real kind of automatic acceptance of anything American, really anything Western. It could have been from England or whatever, but especially anything American, including me, I would have to say. Like if I walked into a meeting, you know, here's Melissa, she's from America. Oh, she must know everything about marketing and advertising. And I was like 25 years old, right? So there was this just kind of blank check acceptance of anything that was, you know, that was American. And so that that made the marketing interesting too, as well. And then there's a really funny story about also think, thinking about cultures, Poland is almost 100% Catholic. And the Polish, the Catholic church in Poland is a very strong constituent in the society. And there was this, um, this wasn't P&G, but there was this um, maker of lingerie called Triumph. And Triumph had these billboards all over Warsaw of women in their bras and underwear, you know, modeling the products. And I can remember being in a taxi, you know, like flying by these billboards and you'd see nuns out there with like vats of paint and they were throwing vats of paint on the billboard to cover up these women in their lingerie. Yeah. Gosh. (laughs) So, I mean, it's just, you know, it doesn't happen in the States, right? It doesn't happen like that. So, I mean, it was such a fun chapter in my, in my marketing career. And it just taught me that Every place you go, like all global marketing is local. Like you ha- you have to start from the ground up. You can't really parachute in with a global model until you've figured out how the global model connects to the local reality. It's so important. Those are great stories. Thank you for that. That's fun. Yeah, fantastic. So let's talk problems. Mm-hmm. What are some of the, whether they're specific to global marketing or working with different cultures or the diplomacy superpower that you bring to your marketing work, what are some of the the, the problems that become rote and you've either figured out how to handle them or you have some great insider wisdom or that you're still struggling with? I think two challenges for marketers today, and I don't really have this cracked, but I'll tell you the sort of live thorny problems like pooling up on my desk. There's really two. One is that a big part of my job is to buy technology, right? So I'm a technology buyer. Now I have a great procurement team and I have a, we have a tech team. So I don't do it by myself, but I, over the past, especially over the past 10 years, I've spent a lot of time in RFPs to buy certain marketing technology and to build business cases around why we need the technology. And it's incredible how much technology takes up my time, right? Looking at how it works and what we need better and you know, when do we need to decommission something because it's not meeting our needs anymore? So it's a constant part of my job is technology and understanding if I have the right technology and how where when I need to change it. And no one trained me for that, right? No one put me through marketing school and taught me about tech. It didn't exist. I mean, I went to business school 20 years ago. When I graduated from business school in 2003, social media did not exist. 
right? right? Just to give you an idea. And this is how much of my job is social media is yeah. massive, right? It didn't even exist. So when I was in when I was in business school. So marketers are having to bootstrap their skill sets on their own, right? And I I guess my advice would be, and I, I need to take this advice myself because it's really hard to carve out time to do it. But my advice would be is create a learning path for yourself. Get some continuing education credentials, get certified in different types of technology. Salesforce has a great curriculum that you can look at. HubSpot has a really nice curriculum. I think Adobe Marketing Cloud has some good courses. LinkedIn Learning has, ton, has tons of things as well. But figure out like, spend some time on those curriculums and get some of those certifications because marketing is a tech job now. It's really a tech job. Now, the other problem I have, I said I have two problems or maybe problem is a harsh way to describe it as it two challenges, two hills to climb. The other hill to climb is data. Marketing is a data job. I also was not really sat down 20 years ago in business school and taught how to run marketing data necessarily. I mean, I, I've, you know, obviously took finance classes and I took statistics classes. I understand how to manipulate data. I understand statistical significance and I understand the principles of data, but data landscapes in marketing are so complex. And also it's really, it intersects with the technology landscape too. And in my case, my role is running customer marketing at Sage. And we have a lot of we're a very big company. We're a very big, complex company in 20 different countries. And we sell hundreds of products and we've grown through acquisition and we have a lot of CRMs. So figuring out like, how do I make data sets across different CRMs compatible with one strategy is, yeah. is a huge challenge. And But it's really important. The customer doesn't care. The customer doesn't care that there's multiple CRMs. Like they don't even, that's not even cross their mind. They just want to be treated like a customer from a one single customer yeah. co- company that understands one data source. So when I started in marketing, I thought I love the creative angle. I started in an ad agency. I did ad campaigns and my starting point was the creativity of advertising. And that's why I got into it. And over the course of my now almost 30 year career in marketing and advertising, I mean, creativity is still really, really, you can't win hearts and minds without an incredible creative idea. So that's never going to go away. But the job has become so much about tech and so much about data. And it just becomes more and more that every every day. So I tell someone listening to this who's in the first few years of their marketing career, it probably for them, this is them, what I'm telling them is so obvious. And like, of course, it's marketing, it's tech and data. That's what I thought I signed up for. It's not what I thought I signed up for 30 years ago, right? 30 years ago, yeah. it was about the creativity. And it was, you know, there were three networks <laughs> that you put your TV ads on and, right. you know, stuff like that. It was a really different landscape. So just know that yeah. and, and figure out how to upskill yourself and stay up to date with this technology. It'll, it'll really help you. It'll really help you. And, you know, I think the exciting thing about the data, I mean, I make it sound a little onerous, but the exciting thing about the data is that it allows us as marketers to be so personalized and so, so much more relatable than we ever could have been, you know, when I first started out. I mean, one of my favorite examples recently is I was flying somewhere and I got to Newark airport and I was on United and I pulled out up the United app and United knows that I'm TSA pre-checked. And at the top of the app, it said, welcome to Newark. It also was locating me. So it knew that I was arriving at Newark. And it said, welcome to Newark, Melissa. You are TSA pre-checked. So you can fly through security, go to lane eight, 
And then your gate is C12 and click here for a map of the airport to find it, right? So they knew exactly where I was in my journey. They knew that I was a TSA pre-checked uh, passenger and they, they reminded me that. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, this is, this is a company who knows exactly who their customer is, right? And they know all the things they need to know about their customer as a passenger. And they're showing me that they know it. And that's a great experience, right? You want to be a customer of a company like that. That's incredible. Do you find that you have data accuracy issues, cleanliness issues, hygiene issues? I think every company does. I think every company has to go through its data cleansing. And one thing we do in our marketing process is we'll have, you know, one team will come up with a data set or a segmentation design. And then another team will look at it and say, well, is this, are the sick codes right? Is the, or is the source right? You know, and double check it. We do a lot of, we have redundancies to just check that the data is actually what we think it is. But I'll tell you, <laughs> I made one of the most horrific mistakes in my marketing career was about, this was a data mistake, was bad data. And this was when I was at American Express and I was doing this loyalty campaign where I was sending these personalized letters. It was direct mail because it was, this was 15 years ago, I guess. Direct mail, we were sending these personalized letters out about people's membership rewards points on their Amex cards. And the objective of the campaign was to to inform the customer about their balance and to give the customer some customized ideas about how to use their membership rewards points. Because if you use your points, then you then you want to go spend on the card, right? Because you lose your points. And that's ultimately, that's part of how a company like American Express um, makes money, but it also makes the customer happy. So we, we were sending these letters you know, there was a little field where it would say, Dear Melissa, congratulations on collecting blank, you know, data field points, membership rewards points. Here are some ideas on what you can do with them this summer or something like that, right? That data field, my data set was wrong. So I sent out tens of thousands of letters that had the wrong points, right? So someone getting that letter in their, like people who collect points know like down to the single point, how many points they have. Like yeah. you know, someone who has 10 million points knows they have 10 million points and they get a letter that says, dear John, congratulations on collecting 72 membership rewards points. Yeah. <laughs> and they were oh. freaking out and it drove so much traffic into the call center, really angry customers, confused customers. What are you talking about? They claim that we took points away from them, oh, that we yeah. stole points. I mean, the thing blew up. It was just a data. It was just. It was just a data mistake. It was poor data quality, and we didn't catch it before sending the letters out. But the customers conflated what it was, what was going on, and decided that we were taking points away from them, which of course we weren't. So we had to do a whole like apology campaign. Really sorry, you know. We had to make sure that we did a correct data set, and we sent the letter out and said, "This is how many points you have." And but of course, we triple, quadruple checked it, but. That was like when at this moment in my career, I thought, all right, that's it. I'm going to get sacked. (laughs) I have to say, though, I'm so glad you shared that story because I think so many people go through that. I've been through that. Mm -hmm. I, I went through a very similar experience where intern made a mistake, but it was under my leadership and it was my responsibility. It was my program. And we were trying to do a ratings and reviews launch. Mm. And in order to launch it, we wanted to collect as many as we possibly could. So we sent out email requests to 40,000 people saying, you recently purchased X, would you be willing to click here and give us a review? But the data was off by one row. And we told people that they'd purchased things that they'd never purchased. We did not purchase. Oh my God. 40,000 people getting notes saying, hey, you just bought a helmet, you just bought a jacket, you just bought a whatever. Yep. 
they thought that their identities were stolen, their credit cards were used, and oh my gosh, yeah. we all freaked out. So yeah. I, I thank you for sharing that because I think we've all had that moment. It happens to everybody. I know it's and, good. It's good to share. It feels cathartic. Yeah. I, but at the time, I thought, really, I must be like, I'm, I'm like, I'm sloppy, or you know, you criticize yourself. You think, well, I could have prevented this, but it's really hard. And this is where I think personal personalized communications, like they they sound good on paper, but if anything is wrong with your data, it blows up in your face. I mean, I had just one other yeah. example. I had a friend who received a message from some company she's a customer customer of. It might have been FTD or something. And they said, we understand that Mother's Day is not a happy day for everyone. So if you would like to opt out of our Mother's Day communications, click here, right? And you know, she'd lost her mom. And so she opted out. She clicked the button. She opted out of all the Mother's Day spam that FTD sends. And then the next day, she got an email about a Mother's Day promotion. So if you're going to do that, if you're going to make a commitment like that to a customer, you have to execute it flawlessly. And this is why I'm, I marvel at companies that can execute it flawlessly because it's not easy. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. You said something before we started going through the official questions about, you know, when people go to search, they're not searching for their segment, their region. They're just searching for the item. Mm-hmm. We definitely have that where I work right now. Where we've got different segments, but we all sell the same software. And nobody's searching for this software for their segment. Yeah. Is that enough that you've figured out how to crack? And you're talking about personalization and getting focused, but if they're not giving you that input on search, how do you crack that nut? I'm going really into the weeds here. Yeah, I don't have a kind of quick answer to that. I mean, I think some of it, like our blog, for example, will have content for small businesses and content for larger, you know, medium enterprises. And you can kind of tell by the type of content that people are reading, like what type of business they are, um, whether they're small or large. Some information comes through on cookies, but it's very broad. Sometimes we'll look at content consumption to sort of tell us what a person is, you know, what a visitor is on the site, but it's really hard. Like, I I think it's just, you know, customer marketing is a little bit of a different situation because we know who you are. You are our customer. We have all your information. (laughs) We have, we know your address and your phone number and we know what your industry is. We, we know how you use the products. So customer marketing is easier, is way easier from the standpoint of the fact that we have so much information about you that you give us. We kind of have no excuse but to be personalized with you, right? Mm -hmm. But even that is not easy because some companies will not have this completely streamlined customer data repository that's a one-stop shop for all the customer data. And we don't, you know, but it is something we strive to have and we know it can really massively help us. But the customer marketing you have no excuse. You know everything about the customer and you should be acting on it. And, and customers expect companies to act on their information. I mean, they expect that. And when you don't, and in fact, when you act in a way that's really contrary to the information, like my friend getting the Mother's Day yeah. messages when she opted out of those, you lose a customer when you do that, yeah. right? Very good. This is great. Yeah, we're, I love the dialogue. We're usually back and forth like ping pong ball with our questions, but this is fantastic, Melissa. You've mentioned a few things already about how marketing has changed over the course of your career, but I'd like to ask that question freestanding just to see, yeah, what are the big rocks for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by targeting on social media. I mean, I think Meta has, they have their issues. 
However, it is pretty incredible that if you want to target orthodontists in San Diego who have a household income over X or have like business turnover over Y or whatever it is that you want to target or are interested in water skiing, right? Like you can, you can target like that on Meta. And that is crazy. Like I just, that's why that company is so valuable, right? Because we've given Meta all of our information. They also see what we post, what we respond to, what, what in content we engage with. And they, so they can put us into these targeting buckets and that's the value of something like Meta. That's why it's so, so valuable. And as a marketer, it just fascinates me. I do some of my own marketing for the book I, I just launched about remote work and the sweet spot target audience for me is human resources executives and he, people who lead HR teams. And so I do advertising on Meta and I can tell Meta I want women in Philadelphia who are chief people officers. And then I create content that is saying, HR leaders of Philly, you know, time to break free from the blah, 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 or whatever. Like I create some, (laughs) I create some messaging that's about Philadelphia and I'm able to target it only to those people. And that's crazy. I just, it still (laughs) fascinates me. So, you know, I think there's just so much fun to be had with the I'm not really that fussed with privacy. I know some some people are, but I and TikTok goes back and forth on the naughty list. I'm not really worried about my data. I feel like my data is I lost control of my data a long time ago. And I just I just like feel like the horse is out of that barn. So that's just my personal feeling. I know a lot of other people feel differently about it and I respect that. But as a marketer, I think it's so what's interesting about it is the ability to be that much more relevant right? Because of the data. And I don't, and I think that actually helps people. I think it saves people time. It helps people in the decision science in their life, you know, is I can't tell you how many things I've purchased off of Instagram. And the reason is because it's so relevant to me. I'm just like, oh my God, I really need that thing. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's so relevant to me and it helps me. And it's something that I wouldn't have found in a million years unless it were put in front of me on Instagram. And then I buy it. Yeah. So, you know, I think that marketing being able to be more relevant this day and age is what's so exciting for both companies and marketers and the the customers that they serve. You know, I just think it saves time and I think it helps connect the right products with the right buyers. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I agree 100%, by the way. It's like we we trade some of our public-facing data for free services that help us find the things that we want. It seems like a pretty good trade to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it usually is. I mean, I don't until until I have to deal with identity theft. I'm right. I'm pretty relaxed about it. But yeah, I understand people who are are cautious, and they're right to be cautious. You know, I I think so. I'm just I'm hoping <laughs> I'm throwing caution to the wind a little bit because I think just the, I'm just fascinated by the what yeah. you can do with the data. So so aside from the possibility of maybe someday dealing with identity theft, is there another um, topic that keeps you up at night? I'm going to sound like Obi-Wan Kenobi or something saying this, but I'm over 50. And I, so I do think about my legacy in my career. Like what, what, what am I actually, what am I going to stop? What am I going to sort of, when's my stopping point? What do I want to be able to say I did when I get to that stopping point? I mean, it's not 
this decade, but it's not far off. I mean, I can see it. My sons were actually asking me last night. They're like, mom, how much longer are you going to work? And I'm like, like mm-hmm. 25 years because I have to put you through college and I have to afford a retirement. And they're like, no, 25 years. That's too long, mom. It's too long. Yeah. Less than 20. But if when you say less than 20, that will be here in a heartbeat. And then then you start thinking, OK, what do I want to say that I've been able to do? And I have a great team and I, I love leading people. And so what kind of leader am I going to be remembered as? And that that's always on my mind. So I don't see it. I don't think it keeps me up at night in the sense that I'm worried about it, but that's really on my mind at this stage. And, and, you know, I want to make, and, and this is, this is, decisions I make feel really important now for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really good segue to one of my favorite questions, which is, are there things that you've wanted to do in your life that you've not yet done? Yeah. Oof. I've never been to Australia and New Zealand. So there's the long list of things that places I've never been. So there's we can just park that as a whole category places I want to go. I have run a half marathon, a couple of half marathons. I think I would like to do something physically challenging again, like climb Mount Kilimanjaro or run a marathon or do, do something physically challenging because... I have friends who have lost their health and even lost their health to COVID, you know, and have long COVID. And I've had friends pass away and I've, I have friends who are disabled. And so to have your health is such a gift. And so just the idea of being able to do something physically challenging uh, with that health is something else I want to do. I think I would love to f- climb Mount Kilimanjaro, but it would probably break my heart that there's no snow on it anymore. Like I just, I'm not sure I could take seeing that. There's other careers I would have had, like I would have liked to have been a diplomat. I don't think I'm going to do that. I want to be a landscape architect. I don't think I'm going to do that. (laughs) So I have other careers I wish I had done and don't think I'll do that. And then the last thing is I love writing. I have three novels in progress that I hope see the light of day. And yes, there's one, not a novel, but yes, it's my business book. Yeah, I love writing and I have three novels that I really hope see the light of day before I can't hold up a pencil anymore. (laughs) So a lot to do, I guess. I'm exhausted just talking about it. (laughs) It is a lot. It's exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've told you this all, Sue, but did I say that I'm writing a novel? That I'm almost done with my first draft of my first novel ever? I can't wait to see you have. Congrats on you. That's a big deal. Thank you. I will probably be the only one to enjoy it because I'm writing it for my, this is a book that I would want to read. And I think other people are going to be like, oh my God, it just kind of goes and goes and goes, but I'm excited about it. So I'm excited for you and year three. That's why you write is you, you write a book that you need to read. Like that's why I wrote your resource is human because I needed to read a book about how to make remote work work. Every book I read on that subject was about the like the Wi-Fi and the the meeting technology and the how to document things and how to handle just disparate team distributed teams and things like that from a kind of meeting and scheduling standpoint. And those things matter. I mean, it's not I don't want to say like it's not worthwhile to have some playbooks for those things um, because it definitely is. And I and I have used some of that advice, but I couldn't find anything that would talk to me about just the emotional side of working in isolation from other people, it's actually not normal for people to be in isolation. It's just not. This is why solitary confinement is one of the worst punishments you can have because it's really hard for humans to be in solitary confinement. And so, you know, remote work is solitary confinement. You know, that's what it is. And I couldn't find any book that would just help unpack 
that. And then what do you do? What do you do? Because you want to have the flexibility, you want to have the option to work remotely and it, and it helps you on the fringes of your life. And so there's so many benefits, but it's also hard. And I think companies, I really don't think companies are solving for the what's hard about it. I think what companies want right now, uh, not I think, I know what companies want right now is they want people to come back. And so that's where they're focusing their energies. And I, every time people ask me, do I think you know, remote working is a good idea. My answer is actually no. I don't think remote working is a good idea. I think hybrid is a really nice solution. And I think people should be able to work a mix of office and home. And I think we should be really flexible and fluid about how we design that. But 100% of the time in your house, all the time for most people is really hard. I personally, I don't think it hasn't been healthy for me. And I didn't understand why till I read the book. Uh, sorry, till I wrote the book. I didn't really understand what was going on with me. I thought it was just weird. Everyone else seems to love it. Something must be wrong with yeah. me. And then when I did the research for the book, I realized, okay, there's just aspects about my personality and the things that I need as a person that are incompatible with 100% remote work. What I would just tell people is to know yourself know whether or not remote work fits you or not. Some people it will fit and that's great. So go do it. Amazing. But know if it's not what fits you. And if it's not what fits you, then find employment that allows you to have a mix of home and office that has a, a design, a work design that fits what you need. And I, none of us have been trained to know what we need, right? Because it was always nine to five in an office <laughs> up until yeah. a few years ago. But now we have to be more self-aware. We have to know what we need. And the companies have to know what people need and then then match the company to the person. And I, so I think those remote work needs need to be part of interview processes. I think we need to take probably personality inventories before we're hired about whether or not we're someone who's suitable for remote work. I think within a company, if someone says, I want to work remotely, I think they should have to go through an inventory, a psychological inventory to to figure out, Mm -hmm. is this going to be good for this person or not? Mm -hmm. We don't do Mm -hmm. any of that today. And we we really need to. Yeah. And not just good for the person, but good for the the team, the person is on and the company. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's all interconnected. It's all interconnected. And I think companies are asking some of the questions, you know, is the job suited for remote work? Is the team suited for remote work? Is this good for the customer? You know, so we're asking some of these questions really good, but we're not asking, is it good for the person? Is it good for the person interpersonally and psychologically? We're just not asking those questions. And I think we really need to. And I can't tell you how many people I talk to who they're just feeling alone. They're feeling just detached. They're not quite sure why they like, well, I have all this flexibility, but I get up depressed every day. Right. And so we have to just start figuring that out. And I really think people should have flexibility. I'm very pro flexibility. I'm very pro hybrid. I am, for me personally, not pro remote work 100% of the time because I just know it's not not my mode. I hear so book. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's an important one. Leslie, show it again. Yeah. So if we do like a screenshot, we can. That's it. Your resource is human. That's right. Yes. I like it. It's fantastic. I mean, so much research, so many people uh, that you talked with and the data points that, I mean, it really is comprehensive and it is a resource that was missing. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And one thing I'd say, because I know you and I talked about the search guru, Leslie, and also I talk about Matt Mullenweg's company, Automatic, which is a $7 billion company. It's a huge private company. Mm -hmm. And Matt made the decision on day one that his employees would all be distributed. And so they would be fully remote 
There would be no headquarters office. He made that decision. And I love the reason he made that decision. The reason he did that was because he believes that talent is distributed around the world, but opportunity is not. Mm, And this is so true. Um, There's no reason that a person in Oklahoma City can't have a Madison Avenue advertising job. There shouldn't be, Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be in their way, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need to distribute opportunity and remote work is part of the way to do that. Matt also did something really important with his model in that he created these meetups. He created a meetup rhythm. So everyone was distributed, but a couple of times a year in different formats, people would come together to meet up for, you know, a week or or 10 days. Okay. And they would do these meetups. And this is a this is a rote like mandatory part of their culture. Like you come to the meetups, right? And the meetups are not as much focused on business as they are on building connections and human relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's on purpose. And that's a big focus of theirs. And his worry during COVID was, I mean, do you think he'd be fine in COVID because his people were already remote anyway, but his worry in COVID and interviews I've heard from him was he had to stop his meetups. And he was like, you know, he had to stop his meetups. And that was a really important ingredient to remote work actually working. And so I think if a company is out there listening to this and thinking, well, gosh, how do we get hybrid right? How do we get remote right? We want to be distributed. How do we do that if it's going to make everyone feel lonely? Look at what Automatic has done, right? Look at their model and create meetups, create opportunities to bring people together. I think T&E budgets need to be specially allocated to fully remote workers so that those fully remote workers have an opportunity to get together. Mm-hmm. Now, we have to think of T&E that way, right? And we typically yeah, don't, travel right? Entertainment. We typically yep. have all, it's all the people in the headquarters office who do offsites and who fly around together and everything. And then mm-hmm. no yeah. one is thinking about the remote worker, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. We have to yeah. change Amen. That. Yeah. I love that burning yeah. topic of yours. It's so important and <laughs> yeah. it makes a, a difference one. for so many people. Thank you for writing the book. Thank and yeah. for, I mean, you stayed up. This was a passion project on the side of your desk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Because it this happen. is how I work. I've been working this way for six years. And like I said, I didn't really love it. And everyone was like, oh, it's so great that you can work remotely, that you're always at home. And I'm thinking, is it? <laughs> no, I don't feel like it's so great. <laughs> and so I needed to answer the question, why do I not like yeah. it? <laughs> so, totally. And then what I found out totally. is lots of other people also don't like it. <laughs> they yeah, you're not alone. Why? <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I appreciate the commitment, the self-awareness. Mm. It's kind of, you're kind of, as you were sh- sharing about it, you reminded me of the introvert-extrovert conversation. Right. right. And how you, know, you can do this, but it's so draining. But for someone else, it's completely fueling. Yeah. Yeah, we're all different. We're all different. And like I said, some people are going to be absolutely great in a fully remote role. And it it fits their life. It fits their their personal commitments. It fits their Mm -hmm. lifestyle, the things that matter to them that are priorities. So there are lots of reasons that fully remote work is is, is 100% the right thing. 21 years. Yeah, Yeah, you've been doing it for a long time. It fits you. It fits your company. It fits the people who work with your company. But you're self-aware too, you know, you know yourself. And so I think that's the step that we have to go through. Mm-hmm. And people in people working in corporate jobs in traditional industries that never were remote before COVID, no, it's probably, none yeah. of us are self-aware, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Well, because right. no one asked us to be, right? Been through it, yeah. 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 But there's responsibility all the way around. The company needs to be clear about the position mm-hmm. and in, in sourcing talent and then um, the person, you yourself and the managers. Yeah. 
yeah. and the folks on the team. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Speed round. Rapid fire. Take as long as you need to answer, but we're just going to go back to back to back. Question number one, if your career is a movie, who plays you? Kate Winslet. Nice. Nice. What's your favorite KPI? Pages read out of a book. Nice. <laughs> Fair enough. Love that. I haven't heard that one before. That's great. First job, worst job. First job was Domino's Pizza. Worst job was a waitress on the night shift at a Denny's restaurant on a highway in Virginia. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Don't ever oh, let your child I... do that. <laughs> no, that sounds horrible. Who's the most fascinating contact in your phone? I'm going to be a romantic here and say it's my husband. Oh, <laughs> love that. Yeah. If you could be famous for one thing, what would it be? Novel writing. <laughs> I would love to be cool. J.K. Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> mm. That'd be amazing. Nice. What's the best compliment you've ever gotten? That I'm supportive. Nice. If you could uh, describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I'm always looking for something. I can't stand still. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's nice. awesome. All right. That was fantastic. Yeah. yeah Thank you, you so, so much. Fun. Great to talk to you both. Thank you for staying tuned. If you're enjoying these conversations, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It really helps us to increase the podcast reach. Thank you. See you next week with more inspiring stories. This episode of Marketing Heroes is brought to you by The Search Guru, produced by Circle Audio and podcast cover art by Andra Lazorb.